This is the Out of Water Podcast. Out of Water is a production of Rio Vista Community Church in Fort Lauderdale, Florida. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. If you like what you hear, please subscribe and tell a friend to help them find Out of Water also. Welcome, folks, to another episode of the Out of Water Podcast. My name is Sam Caston-Smith, and I will be your host on today's episode. Joining me is Will Bushman, our Director of Student Ministries. Sam, how are you feeling? I'm feeling better. I had I had an epidural, which, like, that just sounds wrong for a man to say. I didn't realize that, like, that was something that went beyond, like, childbirth. Childbirth, yeah. <laughs> so... We had a, an appointment because it's pretty debilitating pain. So I've mm-hmm. had a couple of herniated discs in my neck, C5, between C5 and 6 and C6 and 7, which is the more severe one. And so that nerve feeds your shoulder, your shoulder blade down your arm into your fingers. That disc that's in between those two vertebrae is totally crushed. It has tears all through it, so it's pretty deflated. And it's, it's pinching the nerves on both sides of my spine. Ooh which puts you in danger of losing strength in your arms and it's super painful in your shoulder, shoulder blade and arm and, and you get feel numbness and you start losing strength. Like I went to get out of a bathtub and was like pushing myself up and I was like, Oh, my right side is not working, (laughs) but it's super painful to sit down, to drive, to sit on a toilet. You're welcome. (laughs) And all, all things related to toilet. Mm It's like a torture chamber. And so we've been trying to deal with this pain, doing physical therapy and everything else, which is what it is, whatever. And so we went to a pain management place after we were referred by a neurosurgeon because the the last step of this is to fuse the vertebrae together and just surgically fix it. And so we went and got an epidural and he said, you know, this is going to be some slight pressure (laughs) in the back of your head. (laughs) That's what you want to hear. You know, and it's like, all right, weird. So when he does the injection, which the needle in those things is like crazy long. Yeah. Um, when he does the injection, I'm face down. He's going into the spine and spraying the nerve with corticosteroids or whatever it is. And it felt so wild. It felt like my whole upper body, not the back of my head, but like my neck, my shoulder blades, collarbones. It felt like everything was just about to swell and burst for like four seconds. Like I had a hard time mm. breathing. And then it went away and it was kind of a weird feeling afterwards. But I tell you what, like if I was at a hundred percent pain Friday, Saturday, I'm like 10% now. So okay, awesome. super helpful. And they say that the relief from pain, some people don't get any, sometimes it lasts two days, sometimes a month, sometimes a year. And so I'm hoping for the longer term because like sitting down, we're doing a podcast sitting down. This would have been not possible a week ago. Like, um, so they're telling me to take it easy to drive as little as possible to not move around and okay. stuff. So we like canceled last night's Bible study, which was a bummer. Um, I'm, I'm even breaking the rules coming in to sit down to do a podcast. So I'm not supposed Gotta to do, do it until the weekend, but it's right. Um, but I'm feeling way better. So thanks for prayers. Hopefully upward onward. I'd love for this not to have to result in surgery, but I'm, I'd love for the epidural to last a long time. Okay. So that's our good news for the day. Yeah. Today, we're probably getting into the most shameful, hardest, kind of grossest period of Jacob's life. Jacob, who has kind of had, you remember when we were talking about how he wrestled with God and he admits that he's Jacob and God changes his name and and you see this kind of 
conversion moment of Jacob. And afterwards, he's willing to go out and lay down his life for his family, and he puts them behind him to protect him. And you're like, oh, this guy's changed. Here's his great conversion moment. And then it's like in the sovereignty of God, he gives us this story afterwards because it's like, okay, you became converted. Yep. You know, you recognize your need of God. You know, he even has to go through the Jabbok River. So it's like, you know, almost a baptism Cleansing, moment yeah. after the, you see all these points where he's wrestled with God, received the blessing, goes through the water, lays down his life temporarily, <laughs> momentarily. And you're thinking, okay, this guy's a changed man. And then you get to chapter 34 and you see him do probably the most despicable thing of his whole life. And you're like, is, is he a believer or not? And that is very intentional, I think, in the sovereignty of God to give us this story where it's given to us. Because even though Jacob's faithfulness is shattered in this chapter, and he becomes very unlikable, not only by God's standards, but by just basic decency standards. And God's faithfulness does not change to him. And that's disturbing on one hand where you, you're, you know, there's a lot of people, the moralists out there that almost kind of want God to say, I'm done with you when you get yeah. to the bottom of this chapter. But there's a real gospel element that when God claims his people, even when they screw up royally, God does not walk away from them. And that's a real comfort of this chapter that I want, I want us to keep our eyes on as we're going through it because it's gross. Yeah, and it's the theme of Genesis that we've seen. You know, we had this moment. I mean, this is going to be much grosser than anything Abraham did. I mean, just, yeah, I think so. I think so, too. I mean, I don't want to, like, put them all against each other, but I think this is worse. But we saw this with Abraham. It'd be, like, up and down the roller coaster of Abraham left Sarah behind, and you're my sister. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, he's doing something great, saving the Sodomites, and then it's just the roller coaster of, I want to say Genesis, but it's the roller coaster of humanity. Yeah. Really. And sinfulness and depravity. You know, I was thinking about this last night, just in anticipation of today's recording. And if you took Genesis and you took the patriarchs, which we, you know, we do kind of a Sunday school review and we think, oh, Abraham, wonderful. Isaac, wonderful. Jacob and the sons, just wonderful. This is our heritage. But if you took away God's intervention to save them from themselves, like you're talking about, you know, if, if he never showed up to rescue Sarah from Pharaoh and let Abraham's actions stand on its own, yeah, he would be a villain. We would, we would look at him and go, gross, that guy was terrible, but God rescued him from himself. And he does the same thing for Isaac and the same for, for Jacob. And for sure, he does the same thing for Jacob's 12 sons. Mm -hmm. They're all train wrecks, and yet God cleans them up and gives them to us to where we can look at these guys as flawed as they were as fathers of the faith. But without God, they'd be villains, total villains. And that's something to remember, that without God, guess who we are? We're the villains. We're villains. Absolutely. So come into this story with some humility and remember <laughs> that this is happening, you know, 3,800 years ago or so. And maybe don't listen with your kids in the car. Yeah, this is this one you probably don't want to listen to with, with your kids Yeah, because we're dealing with some, some hard things here. To give background, if you remember <clears throat> where we've come from, God, when he confronted Jacob, Way back when he was still at Laban's house, he said, hey, I want you to rise up and I want you to go back to the land of your fathers. That's important to this. Earlier, when Jacob was going into the land of Padan Aram to see Laban, you have God who shows him the ladder and says, I'm going, you know, you're going to come back here. And so the idea, that's Bethel. So the idea was Jacob was supposed to come back to Bethel. That's the land where his father is. That's the land where the family is. That's the land where God showed up. 
And so at the end of chapter 33, right after you have God showing up and defending him from Esau in the wrestling match and Jacob's conversion, it says, after Jacob came from Paddan Aram, he arrived safely at the city of Shechem in Canaan. And you're like, well, that's not where he's supposed to go. <laughs> you know, he's supposed to go back to where his fathers were. But instead, he goes to Shechem, which, you know, the only time he's been there before, he traveled through Shechem to get to Bethel. But now he goes to Shechem. And what's interesting about that is Shechem is a city that is entirely Canaanite. Mm. It's, it's a wicked city. And it's important when it says he comes there and he pitches his tents right outside the city. And that's that's going to be a clue that's going to remind you of something. And I don't know how if it's triggering any thoughts to you yet. But that who, our guy Laban? No. Who who goes toward a wicked city and pitches his tent outside the city? Do you remember? Oh, Lot. Lot. I just messed up the L names. Yeah, yeah. So yeah, it's <laughs> I was Lot. Thinking Sodom, yeah. <laughs> but and that's going to be important to this story. Mm. Because what God is saying is, my people are recreating Sodom here. Mm. It's it's going to be a gross story, except this time it's not the wicked Sodomites who are the evil ones. It's my own people. And so you get to see what does God do with his own people when they're wicked. And it says, for 100 pieces of silver, he bought this from the sons of Hamor, the father of Shechem, the plot of ground where he pitched his tent. And there he set up an altar, and he called it El Elohe Israel. And so now we're jumping into 34. Jacob's chosen to live among the Canaanites. What do we know about the Canaanites? Do you remember? Nothing good. It's nothing good. Like every, you have, when Abraham wants to find a bride for Isaac, what does he tell a servant? Anything but a Canaanite. Anything but from the land of the Canaanites. When Isaac and, and Rebecca want to find a bride for Jacob. Get out of town. Can't be here. You do not get them from among the Canaanite women. Because their culture is so gross and so corrupt and so awful. And so now when Jacob comes back into the land, where does he go? Not not a good place. <laughs> Let's go hang out among the Canaanites. What are you doing, Jacob? This is classic, like, generations not learning from generations. Dude, I mean, it's like you just had your salvation moment, and you're running right back to the most worldly, gross culture you possibly could. You're raising your kids amongst all this stuff, like... No, come on. This is this is not going to end well. You know for out of the gates. So it says now Dinah. So we know Jacob has 12 sons, right? From four women. Dinah is the daughter of Leah. He's, she's the only daughter that we know that that Jacob has. And so she's not married, which means she's 14 or under. The daughter Leah born to Jacob went out to visit the women of the land. And so now this is a problem. Like if because the one thing that we know from reading the rest of Genesis is you want nothing to do with the Canaanite women. Mm -hmm. They're really, really gross. That culture is really, really gross. And so now you have Jacob taking his only daughter and it's like, here, go out and mingle among the Canaanite women, right? And allowing her to go out among the Canaanite women. And it says when Shechem, the son of Hamor, the Hivite, now the Hivite is just a, a, a clan among the Canaanites. There's different clans that are still considered Canaanites, hit the Hivites are one of them. He's the ruler of that area. He saw her. Now, this is all a theme in Scripture. Saw her, took her, violated her. So he sees that she's beautiful. He wants her. He takes her, and then this corrupting moment happens. It's like the same language of the fall. He saw that the fruit was beautiful, took it, ate, and then destruction comes. Like So these impulsive things where you see something beautiful, take and consume, and it brings your destruction— that's a theme in scripture. I don't have anywhere to go with that, but it's just, it's there. Um, 
And it says his heart, now this is what's weird, his heart was drawn to Dinah, the daughter of Jacob, and he loved the girl and spoke tenderly to her. So let me explain what's happened, because this is it's disturbing, but this is the ancient Canaanite culture, and it persists through lots of parts of the ancient world during this time. You have an unmarried girl who is by herself traveling among the Canaanites, and that culture, you read different commentaries, that's a sign that you're, you're free game. Mm. Like it, it was not a big deal for the men to just take her. Um, and so that's exactly what happens. The prince of the town of Shechem, whose name is actually Shechem, Shechem so it's so. confusing, <laughs> but it's easy to remember. He, he rapes her, and then he falls in love with her. He actually does what in the ancient world, this sounds wildly crazy to us, but in the ancient world, if you raped or violated somebody, you made them essentially unmarriable mm. in that culture. So in a weird way, you know, rape and taking a woman who's not your own and just kind of in the Canaanite culture, that was seen as normal. What was abnormal is then he wants to honor her and make her his wife to protect her from walking through the rest of the life with that label. And we're never told how Dinah responds. So we don't know if Dinah felt any affection toward him. We don't know if she hated him. We don't know if she was fearful of him. We don't know anything, but we know that he loved the girl. The language that's used there is like his flesh or his soul was bound to hers. It's the language of, of genuine love and affection. And he spoke tenderly to her, to her. He was kind to her. And so it's like that makes it almost more gross. Yeah. You know, like this guy's psychotic. You can't do that to, a, to someone and then be all lovey-dovey. Like it's super dysfunctional. It's a classic dysfunction that we've seen in Genesis. Mm -hmm. And it's so out of our world that, like, it's hard to even fathom this. Yeah. I mean, Christian ethics have so spread throughout the world. You know, we see individual rights. We see women's rights. We, you know, we have a heart that looks to to protect the downtrodden and the marginalized. Like, this is just, just otherworldly to us living in the 21st century. But if you got in a time machine and you went through the vast majority of places in the world before the spread of the gospel, this was the norm. You know, Asian cultures or African cultures or Middle Eastern cultures, European cultures, like it was not abnormal. That I mean, that's why there were so many different protections on what women had to do. And if they went in public, they had to be accompanied. You even look at books like Ruth, even among the Israelites, like do not go out unaccompanied. And he has to tell his men, leave her alone. Like that was just the norm. It's gross. But the world is a radical, the Christianized areas of the world are radically different now. So, so you have Shechem who rapes Dinah, but then he falls in love with her, speaking tenderly to her. And then he says to his dad, the king, get me this girl as my wife. So when Jacob, now this is where the story gets gross, because I'm trying to imagine this, like I have a daughter, you have a daughter. So now Jacob hears that his daughter Dinah has been defiled. She's been raped, and she's 13. Let's just throw a, a number on it, yeah. 13, 14. His sons were in the field with his livestock, so he kept quiet about it until they came home. So somebody comes in and says, you know, your daughter's been raped. And by the way, she wasn't let go. She is still at his house. Mm. She's not coming home to get comforted by family. She's still with him. And Jake, what's Jacob's response? Just keeping his peace. Keeping quiet. Are you going to keep quiet? I don't know. <laughs> I kinda, you don't know. No, no, I, I wouldn't keep quiet. If I'm keep keeping quiet, quiet think, it's because I'm sneaking up on them to... Yeah, but he's waiting for like 
the team to arrive. Like, I okay. get that. I get it's like a like. What is he? This old man's gonna walk up in there and fight. I get that. That's a just a public warning. If someone does that to Leah, it doesn't matter what age I am or whether I have an epidural or not. Yeah, but eighty year old Sam coming <laughs> stomping into the room is not gonna be like. Uh, well, it's gonna scary. <laughs> it might be scary. Yeah, like <laughs> yeah, like I'm hoping that Jacob is very angry and he's plotting and he's. Wants to get it, but like, I'm hoping that this, the waiting took five minutes. Like they came in from the fields quickly. Okay. So, but this is going to be a theme yeah, of the book. classic Jacob. So you, you said, okay, when it says he's quiet about it, like the first time you come across that, you're like, okay, yeah, maybe he's waiting for the, ca- yeah, the, the you know, the cavalry the to come. The bright side of Jacob, but we know Jacob is not this bright, good intention. Jacob is not really here. Yeah. But at, at this point in the story, you still want to give him the benefit of the doubt. Okay. Yeah, maybe guess. he's holding out to go get some justice for his girl. But one of the things that you're going to see, I want you to pay attention to this chapter. Jacob remains quiet. And we find out why at the very end. And it's just gross. Like, come on, dude, this is your daughter. But it's the daughter of Leah, too. So he plays favorites. He lifts up Joseph and later he'll lift up Benjamin, and he, which is dysfunctional. And he really does. Any of the sons or daughter of Leah don't get much affection through yeah. the story. And they're, they're a mess. Until the end of Genesis, they'll remain a mess. So it says, so Jacob's remaining quiet about it. It says, then Shechem's father, Hamor, went out to talk to Jacob. Now Jacob's sons had come in from the field as soon as they heard what had happened. So they're like, they're ready for action. They they, hear about it and they're like, they're right in there. Did they intercept Hamor? Um, Like does, it seems like he never gets to Jacob in this scene. No, Jacob's there. Okay. So, so Jacob is here. So they all converge together. They're having this discussion Uh, he's looking to get Dinah as a bride for his son. All the brothers are ba-boom. They're like right on the scene. It says they were filled with grief and fury. Notice that it doesn't say that about Jacob. Like why does it specify it's just the brothers that are filled with grief and fury? Yeah, which is why I asked if Jake was even there because he's there, but it's almost like he's not there, which is your point. Yeah. Like he's present, but he's not present because he just, you don't hear about him almost ever again. Yeah. Why in the world is he not filled with grief and fury? Why is he quiet? And the reality is it's because Jacob is sitting there thinking, how is this going to impact me? I'm going to blow the ending for you. How is this going to impact me? It says they were filled with grief and fury because Shechem had done a disgraceful thing in Israel by lying with Jacob's daughter, a thing that should not be done. But Hamar said to them, my son Shechem has his heart set on your daughter. Please give her to him as a wife. Intermarry with us. Give us your daughters. Take our daughters for yourselves. You can settle among us. The land's open to you. Live in it, trade in it, acquire property in it. And so here you have Hamor who's coming to Jacob and he's like, look, I want to do the right thing. Like my son wants to marry your daughter. You know, probably maybe it shouldn't have happened this way, but here, like he's going to say, you know, bride price, whatever, I'll pay you whatever you need. Let's merge together. And this, this is the temptation when you come to the wickedness of the world and you're a covenant people of God, is there's always the temptation where he's like, you know, we'll intermarry, you know, we'll share each other's cultures, we'll, you can live in the land, we'll have trade together, we'll be stronger together, just, you know, lose all your distinctives yeah. <laughs> and merge and mesh into ours. And so... Then Shechem said to Dinah's father and brothers, so Jacob and these angry brothers, let me find favor in your eyes and I'll give you whatever you ask. 
He says, make the, make the price for the bride and the gift I am to bring as great as you like. I'll pay you whatever you ask of me. Only give me the girl as my wife. So now you have, here's, this is the son now, Shechem okay. saying, there's no price that I would not lay down to keep Dinah. I love her that much. Like she's, so what does that sound like? I'll, I'll pay an outrageous bride price. That's what Jacob was doing for Rachel, paying oh. an out. I'll pay you whatever, like seven years, which is a crazy price. Now you have Shechem who's saying, I'll do that for Dinah. Whatever you want, just please give me her as my wife. And so it says, because their sister Dinah had been defiled, Jacob's sons replied deceitfully. So who's replying? Still the sons. That's not the way this works. It's not the sons who give away the daughter. It's the father who gives away the daughter. So Jacob should be talking, but right now he is totally conflicted inside. He knows that this demands justice. He knows that this was entirely improper, what they've done to the daughter. He knows that his daughter is still, in some sense, being kept captive by this guy, willingly or unwillingly, improperly. And so they come negotiating. It's like, Jacob, speak up. Where are you at? Mm -hmm. You're the dad, man. Speak up. Defend your daughter. You can almost imagine the awkward scene with... Hamor talking to Jacob directly. Like he's looking at him eye to eye as fathers. Yeah. And then all of a sudden, like Jacob's just sitting there silently and the sons start talking. You're like, wait, exactly. What are you guys doing here? But that, I mean, it goes to show you at this point in their life. And by the way, this gets redeemed down the road, <laughs> further, further down the road. But if, if he's talking to Jacob and the sons are speaking on behalf of the father, what does that say about their respect for their dad? They know he's not going to talk. They know they, they have no respect. They have no expectation that he is going to defend their sister, which means what, what do they think he thinks about all the children of Leah? Like he has played such favorites that they feel invisible. You know, you don't care about us. You don't care about her. You only care about your Joseph. Mm. Like you see that the favoritism yeah. coming in, like even at the end of this, they're like, you know, do you see our sister as a prostitute? Like, Meanwhile, the next major narrative that comes after this is Joseph in chapter 37, where it's like, oh, my favorite son, and here's the coat and all mm. the privilege. Meanwhile, they're, you know, the disappointing sons. And favoritism is no bueno in this family, and it, it wrecks them. So even out of the gates, you have the sons that don't respect Jacob. They're speaking on his behalf. Jacob's sons, in response to their offers, replied deceitfully, as they spoke to Shechem and his father Hamor, they said to him, oh, we can't do such a thing. Now here they're about to pretend to be religious. Yeah. And I'm, j I'm just going to say it now. This family at this point is not worshiping the Lord. Hmm. They're, they're into pagan worship. We'll see that later um, in, the, in this text and later in the story. They're giving themselves to, to pagan gods, and yet in their wickedness, they dress it up as religious righteousness. So they say, oh, we can't do such a thing. We can't give our sister to a man who's not circumcised. And so they're pretending, this wicked family, they're pretending like, oh, the covenant of circumcision is so important to us. We can't possibly give our sister to a man who's not circumcised. That would be a disgrace to us. Here, we'll give you our consent on one condition only, that you become like us by circumcising all your males. That's a, that's a big ask. <laughs> so no bride price, no money. Just go circumcise every, imagine that cell when Shechem comes back into town and he's like, well, I'm getting a, a bride. And everybody's like, oh, congratulations. Yeah. Hey, 
There's just, there's one condition, guys. All of you need to be circumcised. <laughs> Wait, so you can get married? This is. Yeah, you'd be like uh, any other girl. Can you just check them? <laughs> Whoever you want. Seriously. But like, when, like, why am I involved in this circumcision? Just you should be involved. But you, like, it, they're dressing it up with religiosity. There's no virtue in this home at this point in time. And yet they're like, they're, they're playing religious. They're, they're using religion to get their vengeance. That is a really dangerous thing to do when you are being moved by a purpose of vengeance and you're dressing it up in religious language. So that is some of the grossest stuff humanity does. It never leads anywhere good when you're trying to carry out vengeance in the name of religiosity, and that's what they're doing in this case. So you've got to get circumcised. Then we'll give you our daughters, and you can take daughters. We'll take daughters for ourselves. We'll settle among you. We'll become one people with you, which is a big no-no from God. He says, but if you will not agree to be circumcised, we'll take our sister and go. Verse 18, their proposal seemed good to Hamor and his son Shechem. The young man, who is the most honored of all his father's household, lost no time in doing what they said because he was delighted with Jacob's daughter. So Hamor and his son Shechem went to the gate of their city to speak to the fellow townsmen. It's like, imagine, imagine this. <laughs> he says, these men are friendly toward us, they said. Let them live in our land and trade in it. The land has plenty of room for them. We can marry their daughters and they can marry ours. It's good up to this point. Yeah, well, okay. Good sell. They're <laughs> yeah, probably like, I'm tracking. <laughs> but the men will consent to live with us as one people only on the condition that our males be circumcised as they themselves are. Now listen, because now he's gotten to the hard part of the cell. Listen to what the motive is, because he goes straight to that. He says, I know that the, uh, that's going to be a hard thing. I'm asking Tough you to ask. circumcise yourself as adults here. But won't their livestock and their property and all their other animals become ours? So let, let's give our consent to them and they will settle among us. So what has Shechem just said? If you just put on the religious hat, you, you, know, you, you do the religious mm. thing, you get all their money. There's no aspect of this that involves the worship or adoration of God. Yeah, it's interesting that God's not mentioned at all. Even when they're talking about circumcision, it's not saying because our God requires that for us. It almost just seems like mm -hmm. circumcision for circumcision's sake. That's exactly right. It's religiosity for the sake huh. of religious pride. God is no part of this. You read the entirety of chapter 34, God never shows up. Would these guys, would these Canaanites know, have known that circumcision was the sign of God's people? I'm sure they would okay. have. So, so circumcision in the ancient world wasn't unique to just the Israelites. Okay. But from infancy as a covenant of a relationship with God, it was. So like the priests in Egypt as adults would be circumcised. Like there's, there's like hieroglyphs and stuff like that. And sure, wall those paintings are that are wild where you see like men restraining the Egyptian priest and Cool. You know, they, they get like praised in hieroglyphs, like this man did not resist and did not struggle. <laughs> you know, you're like, all right. And it's like the full picture of him being restrained while somebody with a knife is about to go to town. Mm -hmm. on him. And you're like, holy cow, like <laughs> crazy wall painting. But nobody did it like the Israelites where it was expected of the entire people group from infancy. And so like when, when Moses is found by Pharaoh's daughter and she's like, oh, it's a Hebrew, you know, she knows it's a Hebrew because okay. it's a baby who's circumcised, and no other culture did that. So, yeah, they would have known. They were known as a people of, of circumcision. 
Um, but here you clearly see the only reason why they're entertaining this is for money. So nobody, I mean, imagine I went to, so we, we tend to read these stories and forget God's heart in it. God has given them this covenant because he wants them set apart to be his people. Like the sign of that covenant is precious and sacred to him. And how are the brothers using it? As we'll see, it's just a ploy. It's just a scheme to get their way. And then these other people are like, sure, we'll take on circumcision, not to get God, not to be part of a covenant, not to, to draw near, but to get paid. And you think like, even to, we look at this and go, well, this sounds archaic. Even today, how many people pack into churches or seek after God? And it's like, if I take on this identity to myself, my life will go better. He'll, yeah. he'll bless me. I'll get wealth. I'll get acceptance. I'll get what I want. And it's the same from both sides. The, the Jacob's sons are just using religiosity for the sake of vengeance and pride and moralism. And we're going to prove ourselves right. And we're going to, you know, show you that you're wrong. Ultimately, you'll see where this goes. And the others are just, okay, well, we'll take the sign of God so that we get a blessing. And God is, he's not mentioned one time in this entire chapter. Absolutely, utterly forgotten. Is Shechem's heart true that he actually likes Dinah? Yeah. Okay, so this is just a ploy from him to get everyone else on board with the plan. Yeah, so the language that's used, like he literally says that his soul, his nefesh, that's the Hebrew, is is bound to hers. It's the language of marriage. It's it's, it's almost covenantal, like they be, he became one with her. His, his heart became one with her, which is the confusing part of this. Like here you have somebody who does monstrous evil. He took her because he wanted her, not because there was a relationship or anything. It's rape. Yeah. And yet he he does. He he's soft toward her. He's tender toward her. He's desperate to spend the rest of his life with her. And the Bible leaves us ambiguous as to where Dinah is. And so you you don't know the backstory and it's deliberate to not give you the backstory. I think because it's trying to compare the story to Sodom and we'll get there in a minute. But it's it's pretty gross. And so they make this case to all the people of Shechem, you know, you take on the circumcision, we'll get all their money, it'll be part of us. And so it says, all the men went out of the city gate, agreed with Hamor and his son Shechem, and every male in the city was circumcised. That's wild. So verse 25, three days later, while all of them were still in pain, now we find out why the sons made this plea. Three days later, while all of them were still in pain, Two of Jacob's sons, Simeon and Levi, sons of Leah, by the way. So the only ones who go to get vengeance are sons of Leah. Dinah's a daughter of Leah. So you have these two sons, Dinah's brothers, and they took swords and attacked the unsuspecting city, killing every male in the city. They put Hamor and his son Shechem to the sword. They took Dinah from Shechem's house and left. The sons of Jacob came upon the dead bodies looted the city where their sister had been defiled. They're, they seized their flocks and herds and donkeys and everything else of theirs in the city and out in the fields, and they carried off all their wealth and all of their women and children, taking as plunder everything in the houses. How do you feel about that? It's just wild. And now you see, like, this particular chapter is meant to draw your mind to the story of Sodom. And so let, let, me, let me pause here and build parallels, okay? So Lot, when he ran away from Abraham, he's going towards Sodom, which is the wealthy pagan city that's known to be wicked. They, they hate God, right? Well, it's the same as Shechem. 
and Lot pitches his tents outside the city. Jacob pitches his tents outside the city of Shechem. Now get this, Sodom was filled with wicked men who were willing to sexually abuse guests that came into the city. What's Shechem? It's a wicked city that's sexually abusing guests into their town. Lot, who comes along, is, remember when the men of Sodom are banging on the door demanding to rape the angels? What's Lot's response? It's really wicked. He says, oh, you know, to have peace, you can have my daughter, Hmm. my daughters. What's Jacob? He seems willing to give his daughter to Shechem rather than have a conflict. And it's, it's showing you that Jacob now is taking on some of the gross elements of the story of Sodom. And by the way, God sent two angels into Sodom to do what? Destroy it. To destroy it. What do you see in this story? Simeon and Levi. Two men who go into the city to destroy it. The difference is Abraham's pleading on behalf of Sodom, and he's like, you can't do that. What if there's righteous people in the city? And what does God say? He says, well, I'll I'll spare the whole city if we can find righteous people there. And that's God. And who does vengeance belong to? God alone. God alone. We, We do not have the right ever to impose vengeance like this on an entire city. And so here you have Simeon and Levi, the sons of Jacob, that are so wicked in this case that they say we're going to stand in place of the angels Mm. in the story. We don't know the heart. We don't know whether these people are every one of them is wicked. We don't know if there's righteous people in the town and they go in and they not only kill the rapist, they kill his dad. And then they go around through the town and kill every single male in the entire town and that is outrageously wicked. And and just to make sure that nobody walks away and thinks that the Bible is lifting them up like as good guys, later on when it comes time to receive the blessing, when when Jacob will rebuke them in the final blessing, when you get to Genesis 49, and he gives them a, a pretty womp-womp blessing to both Simeon and Levi. And he says, you're men of bloodshed. And by the way, if you look at the allotments of, of where the tribes receive the great land, Simeon's land is like a, just a part inside the territory of Judah. They get almost nothing, and it's down in the desert terrain of Beersheba. Their allotment is not so good. Levi doesn't get any land at all. They're given sanctuary cities because they're going to become the priests. Like, But their blessing is your, your people of bloodshed. It's not lifting them up at all here. This is not considered to be a good thing. I got to say that when I first read this story, I was kind of proud of them (laughs) because when I hear a story of someone abusing, raping a young girl, and I see Jacob remaining quiet, the fact that they were like, let's go get them. We're going to free our sister and we're going to make them all pay. You're harboring your, your prince is a rapist. We're going to wipe them all out. Like there's part of me that when I read that, my flesh goes good. You know, any part of you? Yeah, the flesh side. You're definitely like, it seems like justice. Mm-hmm. Wrong. It's vengeance. It's not justice. But in, in a weird way, yeah. it is what, like. What would justice have been? I don't know, which is why this is a confusing. Like, it is a confusing story morally. Yeah, I think justice is maybe capturing Shechem and putting him on trial, you know, to take. And, and in what court? You yeah, know, and I guess I just don't know enough him. about yeah ancient. <laughs> And maybe Hamor, but like they just indiscriminately kill everyone without trial, without jurisprudence, without hearing both sides of the story, without weighing evidence, without knowing the hearts. And that's why the Bible, like in Romans 12, 19, it says, never, never 
take your own revenge, beloved, but leave room for the wrath of God. God will, God will get his justice. And he says, for it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. And so the Christian, like, yes, we pursue justice, but revenge and vengeance where you just go and you take out what you want on other people, that's super, super wicked, super wicked. And so this is kind of this weird inverted picture of Sodom where the brothers are like, I'm going to stand in the place of God because essentially that's where Jacob's family mm. has gone. We're going to stand in the place of God. We don't need him. Yeah, well, yeah, we don't worship that God. He's not active in our life. We don't even trust that he would handle the situation if he was yeah. even around. So I'm yeah. going to take it in my own hands. There's no prayer. There's mm. no point in this chapter where they're like, God, help us. Like, Dinah, please, you know, can you rescue her? When Jacob's in trouble, he throws up a prayer for himself. But, you know, like there's there's no, there's God's not in this chapter at all. And so what it's showing you is Jacob's family is devolving. One, mm. Jacob goes back to the city of the Canaanites. So he bears some blame for putting his family in this crazy, corrupt, really wicked culture. He's letting his daughter be discipled by the Canaanites that are like all of Genesis has been warning about this culture. You have the sons that are going on genocidal campaigns. And remember when the Sodomite king comes to Abraham and he's like, here, you can have all the wealth of our city. And Abraham's like, I can't take any wealth from you because you're a wicked city. What are, what are the sons of Jacob doing? Yeah, they're not mad that their brothers just slaughtered <laughs> a whole town. They're like, I guess we'll go Plunder. get their stuff. Yeah. yeah, they're running in, getting all the flocks and herds and women and daughters. And you, like, you got to allow your imagination then to imagine all of these widows who just had their husbands slain are now coming back into the camp of Jacob. Like when you allow your imagination, Jacob has been quiet. He's not defending his daughters. His sons are, you know, don't respect him. They're they're going on. This is meant to make you go, who are these people? Like this, this is, these are the fathers of our faith. Like you're to walk away from this chapter going, why in the world does God use these people? Just really gross. Levi, by the way, is going to be the father of the line of the priest. <laughs> so the first time we see Levi do anything significant, it's going into a city of wicked Canaanites and slaughtering them all. I don't know how to say this because I don't know how to say anything during this podcast. Because <laughs> who knows? It's, well, yeah, it's a rough clipped. one. <laughs> but it's interesting that he is a man of bloodshed and his line will shed blood to hmm. make them right with God. That's interesting. I've never thought about that. Like God does a full, like a 360, or I guess it's 180, 360 puts you back where you, where you <laughs> yeah. are. A full 180 to where God even redeems that. And not God's not being twisted, but this act yeah. is twisted. And it's like all of a sudden, like my great-great-grandfather destroyed a whole city and caused so much bloodshed. But here I am on behalf of the people trying to get us back to God through the killing of these animals. That's really good. I think that's right. You know, God is going to take the things that we pervert and he's going to make them redeemed. And that's just what he does. He takes like, it's like we talked about earlier, all of the patriarchs on their own would end up being villains if God didn't clean up their story. And and you, you'll see that, by the way, here, God is going to clean up their story. But, you know, this happens in the city of Shechem. Do you know that when, and Joshua and I think it's chapter 21 when all the allotment is happening and all the cities are being given out to the different tribes. You know, this, this particular city of Shechem is set aside for what's called a sanctuary city for, for manslayers. Mm. What does that mean? That no means idea. that if you kill someone 
Shechem is a place where you can run to and you were absolutely, they couldn't kill you there. You had absolute refuge there until there was a fair trial where you could appear before elders and get real justice. Otherwise, in cities, you know, that the elders of the city could come along and say, you're guilty of murder and put you straight to death. But let's say that you you claim that it was an accident or something happened and you, you know, there's extenuating circumstances here and you want to be able to plead your case and get authentic justice. You could run to the city of Shechem because God set aside this city as a refuge for people to get authentic justice. God was rebuking what Levi and Simeon did where they they gave... They gave Shechem no opportunity for justice. They were just indiscriminate and in killing everyone in that city, not knowing their heart, not knowing whether they were good, bad, uh, you know, whatever. And God rebukes that thoroughly later on, and he, he'll redeem some of this stuff. So I think when you talk about Levi being people who shed blood, but then that becomes actually a blessing where they do the sacrifices of Israel for the cause of righteousness, it's transformed, it's redeemed. I think that's right on. That's cool. Verse 30, it says... Then Jacob said to Simeon and Levi. Finally. No, but listen like he finally to what he speaks. says. But, yeah, but at least we hear him. Like, <laughs> at least we know he's true. not mute anymore. It's true. Well, he finally says something, and I want you to listen to what he says. He's finally rebuking Simeon and Levi. Never rebuked Tamor or Shechem. Or, he says, you have brought trouble on me. Now, pause for a moment here. Your daughter's been raped. She's been taken captive. Your sons have just had to walk through this and be understandably righteously indignant that this happens. You did nothing. You let their anger stew and overflow and boil to the point where they schemed a genocidal plan. And by the way, I don't know if Jacob was in on this plan, but I want you to know that when he sat there and listened to his sons negotiate a bride price for his daughter, he never said, no way am I giving my daughter to a rapist. He doesn't speak up. Mm-hmm. He doesn't say, oh, yeah, I like this plan or not. He's just, he's totally passive because he does not want to be put in a bad position politically for himself. And now that his sons have wiped out an entire town of men, his first words are, you have brought, well, listen to all the first person pronouns here. You have brought trouble on me by making me a stench to the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the people living in this land. We are few in number, and if they join forces against me and attack me, I and my household will be destroyed. He never, there's no like, oh my goodness, Dinah, you're home. I'm so happy to see you. I'm so sorry for what you've been through. And there's, there hasn't been any concern for anyone besides himself through this whole chapter. Maybe I'm being like super uncharitable to him, but he just comes across in this chapter. I just want to grab him by the collar and be like, dude, you're a dad. Like, go shepherd your kids. And, of course, that's self-righteous. Yeah, it's confusing how obsessed Jacob has been probably throughout now that we're talking about it, all of these chapters, his whole life with his weird, twisted reputation. Mm-hmm. Like he's always scheming and deceiving and it is all about him. Like all of a sudden he's like, oh, all of this happened to my family. And you know whose opinions I only care about? Oh, the Canaanites that I'm not even supposed to be with. This is where we, you know, that we talked about this a few episodes ago where like faith is always at odds with circumstance because you look at your circumstances and you think, oh my gosh, how in the world could I possibly overcome the circumstance? But faith says, well, God has promised that I'm going to overcome that circumstance 
So I should be able to rest in the promise, trusting that God's going to overcome the circumstance rather than me fretting and trying to figure out how I'm going to do it, my own strength and everything else. So Jacob, from the get-go of his life, has been told, you know, the older will serve the younger. The blessing is going to fall on you. And he's never believed that. Hmm. He's never trusted it. He's always had to scheme, always had to lie, always had to pretend, always had to maneuver. He's been told, you're going to get all the land, your, your descendants are going to inherit all the land. And now listen to what he's saying. Like, if I don't scheme because you've done this to me, because you're going to make the Canaanites and the Perizzites mad, now they're going to destroy us, which means I believe what I can see with my own eyes. I'm looking at the circumstances. God has said that we are going to inherit this land, that my descendants are going to be you know, numerous and everything else. And he looks at his sons rebuking them, and he's like, God's promise is not true. Your maneuvers and your standing in front of my scheming is going to get me destroyed and we're not going to inherit the land and we're all going to be wiped out. So God's promise is not true. That's what Jacob is saying to his kids, essentially. That's more charitable for Jacob than I would have never thought Jacob had the promise of God on his mind at all. <laughs> like, like in a weird, I feel like this is just full self-preservation for this earthly life, which is fascinating that like I, until you spoke about the promise of God, I'm like, He's never thought about that again. <laughs> but he, but when he yeah. was faced with Esau, when Esau's coming to him with an army of 400, all of a sudden God, Jacob's like, I have no other options. I can't scheme. I can't run anywhere on my own strength. God, remember, you promised me. Yeah. And then God follows through. And the next chapter, he's, he's already forgotten this, and he's scheming all on his own again. Mm-hmm. Like, rather than trusting, you know, God has given me promises. I'm going to do the righteous thing, even though it, it's scary to confront Shechem and defend my daughter because I don't know how this is going to turn out. He's like, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to remain quiet. I don't, I don't see how this turns out good for me. Or uh, my sons are scheming. Well, you know, this will be their issue. I'm not, I'm not going to pipe up about my daughter's marriage. I'm going to let them handle it, and I'm just going to kind of politically play the jellyfish. And that's what Jacob is doing through this whole chapter until it all blows up, and then he's like, you've hurt me. Your, your scheme is hurting me. You know, it's like, oh, Jacob, you are like so self-absorbed. And this is like our representative of the story. This is who we are. Yeah. I mean, how many times have you been delivered by God and then the next chapter of your life you're going, how am I going to make it out of this? <laughs> it's us. I mean, it's more extreme, hopefully, well, yeah. than some of the stuff that we deal with. And hopefully we're not, you know, snoozing through a crisis in our daughter's life. But it's the same stuff i mean we jacob's dealing with big life and death stuff and he's buckling right yeah we got smaller things to worry about and we can't master faith over circumstance you know and so you you reach the end of this because he's just chewed out his kids your stupidity like the people are going to hate us they're going to destroy us they're going to they're going to hate me and then they replied and you can just hear the animosity and i think this is coming from leah's kids. So it's the neglected children of the family. You play your favorite and they say, should he have treated our sister like a prostitute? So here you have the sons who were watching their father, Jacob, not stand up for their sister. And he's allowing the sister to be shamed and kept kidnapped and, you know, undergo all this like really awful experiences. And he does nothing and the rage in the sons boil over because the father has done nothing and the whole house is fractured because the father was too cowardly to stand up 
and do the right thing. And that's how that chapter ends. No, we can't stop there. No, we're not stopping, but that's where (laughs) the chapter ends. Yeah, so then the story turns, and it's wild. Because at this point, like, if I'm God, I'm having a conversation with Jacob, and it's going to be intense. Like, how many times do I have to smack you over the head and show my faithfulness and be there for you, and you keep running away from me, you don't trust me, you keep getting yourself in all of these dilemmas, And all of these dilemmas come because you don't trust my promises. What is wrong with you? Like, I'm going to be pretty livid if I'm God, right? Yeah. Chapter 34, God's not mentioned once. Nobody cares what he thinks. Nobody cares about his covenant. Chapter 35 begins. Then God said to Jacob, and you're like, all right, here we go. Here we go. (laughs) Game time. (laughs) Yes, God, lay into him. Like, rebuke him. Destroy him. God said to Jacob, this is not God right here. Hey, Jacob, remember when when you came through and I showed you that ladder at Bethel, and I told you that when you leave Padanaram to come back here, but you didn't, and you went to Shechem? Oh, and by the way, remember when I showed up to you in Padanaram and I told you to leave Laban's house and to come back to your homeland where your family is, and you chose to go to Shechem and to the Canaanites? He, he doesn't shame him. He doesn't say, hey, how'd that turn out? You did real well, didn't you? <laughs> like, good job, bud. Your, your lack of faith brought destruction on your family, all this pain, a genocide to a city. There's no rebuking here. He just says to Jacob, go up to Bethel and settle there. <laughs> you remember what I first told you to do? Yeah. Go there. Here's a second chance. And do what I told you. Yeah. Build an altar there to God who appeared to you when you were fleeing from your brother Esau. Reminder. I told you to go to Bethel. I told you to go back to your family, to your father. You didn't, and it blew up into your face. Mm. You thought you could be a person of the covenant and go live among the world the way the world does. And people of the covenant who live among the world the way the world does face all the same destructions. Mm. You got to be set apart. You know, in conversion, you hit the crisis moment, and you've tried everything else, and now you're like, okay, maybe God. Mm Mm-hmm. At least that was my experience. And then you you run to God because there's no other option. And you feel his embrace and you feel his love and it's overwhelming and it's wonderful. And you know, you have the baptism experience and the conversion and the, you feel the freedom of laying your sins down. But then you have all these temptations, right? You, you You still have all the brokenness and the ways that you used to be and everything else. And it's really hard to walk away from those. And to honestly live the way that God calls you to do. It's much easier to run to Shechem because that's just more familiar, right? So Jacob has had the the conversion moment. What he hasn't had is the sanctification yet. Mm. (laughs) And here comes the sanctification. And I love, like, initially when when you get to 35 and you want God to rebuke Jacob, there's a real beauty to the fact that God comes to him in kindness, Jacob knows he's made a mess of himself. No one has to look at Jacob and say, was that a good decision? (laughs) He knows it's a bad decision, but God comes to him kindly and says, okay, go up to Bethel and settle there. And it's the kindness of God that leads to repentance. And so what do you see in verse 2? So Jacob said to his household and all who were with him, get rid of the foreign gods you have with you. And that makes you go, what? Yeah. They, what are they doing with foreign gods, Jacob? So it's not that they just went to Shechem because it was like cheap real estate. All of the people in his household have these little pagan gods that they're walking around worshiping, which means Jacob has taken all the blessings of God and he's still giving himself to all the world's idolatry. Yeah, it shows us how they got here. Because again, it's a little bit like, 
oh man, this seems like an extreme, but this isn't instantaneous. This has been going on for a while. They've walked away and they've been walking away. Yeah. Can you relate to this though? Yeah. Here's your conversion moment. Could God come to you and say, Hey, Hey, Bill, you, you still, you're still carrying around a lot of idols. Yeah. <laughs> you know, uh, you know, even though God has been faithful to you time and time and time again, you keep running back to the idols. We all do this. Yeah. That's funny that uh, we're such bad people. Cause I think less of them cause they had physical idols. Yeah. Isn't that yeah. fun? Like, I'm just like, Oh, they carried around a little statue. Like it just I'm seems not easier to get yeah. rid of that, you know, but it's the same effect. Like I'm not yeah. looking to the faithfulness yeah. of God. Mm-hmm. And how, what an insult to put your trust in these stupid things that just keep disappointing you again and again and again. They never perform. They just enslave you. That's what we do with our idols. But at this point, Jacob is finally leading. Thank the Lord he's speaking up and telling his family, put away your foreign gods you have with you. Purify yourselves. Change your clothes. Like we're all getting a new identity, a fresh start. Change your clothes. Get rid of the foreign gods. He says, then come, let us go up to Bethel. Hey, all right, obedience. We're getting there, Jacob. This is good stuff. Where I will build an altar to God who answered me in the day of my distress and has been with me wherever I have gone. And I think there's real penitence here where Jacob's like, man, I do not deserve this God. Like he is with me wherever I go and always answers me in the day of my distress, even though we're walking around with pagan gods and impurity and gross stuff. And so it says, they gave Jacob all the foreign gods that they had, the rings in their ears, which is a reflection of pagan culture back then. Jacob buried them under the oak at Shechem. Then they set out and the terror of God fell upon all the towns around them so that no one pursued them. And this is another... Like, this is just God. Because what is Jacob's big fear at the end of chapter 34? He's chewing out his sons because... Everyone's going to destroy them. Oh, my goodness, you're going to make all of our neighbors hate. And what does God do? He goes and changes the hearts of the neighbors to protect his people. Mm. Jacob doesn't have faith to think that that's possible, and yet that's exactly what God does. I have a quick backtrack. Is yeah. him hiding them under the tree? Why didn't he destroy them? Is I'm, Am I just reading into that? Maybe I just don't trust Jacob at all. <laughs> that's a good question. Um, but it is interesting where he buries them. It says that he's in Shechem, so he's he's leaving Shechem, and he's on his way to Bethel. And before he leaves, he takes all the household gods and the jewelry of everything, and he buries it under what it says is a terebinth tree. And so when you get to one of the famous chapters, hundreds of years later, this very same location comes up. And it's when Joshua has led all the armies of Israel into the land. And they're all clinging to idols. And he's like, whoa. And you remember the famous, like a lot of people have this as refrigerator magnets where he says, choose for this day who you will serve. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Well, when he gives that speech, he's standing at Shechem. Mm. And he says to the people, bring me all of your idols, right? Get rid of all. It's the same speech essentially that Jacob did. And then he establishes a pillar and an altar at the terebinth tree in Shechem. I think it's Joshua chapter 24. And so this is going to be the very same spot where Joshua gives the same speech and Mm. calls Israel to get rid of your pagan gods and become a pure people. So that's exactly what Jacob is doing here. So it's just interesting that he buries it at that very same place. You know, at the end of the story, we're left kind of unsatisfied. We're looking at a woman who has been abused, who does not receive compassion from Jacob. And on the other side, we're looking at a town filled with 
lost men that are that are going to be slain and and a genocide is committed against them and it leaves us longing for something better right well fast forward to the new testament and we see someone who is so much greater than jacob and we're told of a time where jesus goes to a town of sychar which is the greek transliteration of the word shechem so Jesus shows up at Shechem, which is between two mountains, Mount Gerizim and Mount Ebal, and he shows up at a well. And if you know this story, it's the story where Jesus meets a woman at a well who has had five husbands, and and we might think or want to think that that means that she's a serial adulteress, but on all likelihood, she has been used up by these husbands who take advantage of her and leave her and take advantage of her and leave her. And so when we come to that story, we find Jesus who is meeting a woman who has been serially abused in all likelihood, and he shows her great compassion. Mm. And rather than going into the town of Sychar or Shechem where she has been abused by these men and annihilating them like Simeon and Levi has done, through Jesus's compassion to this woman, the woman goes back into the town and all the men of the town come out to see Jesus, and they are converted to faith and redeemed. And so you see the contrast where in the Old Testament, this this disturbing story where you have a victim of abuse who has shown no comfort, who is not defended by her dad, and a town full of people that are wicked, that are utterly slain. A great genocide breaks out, and that's the end of the story in the Old Testament. But when you see Jesus... We see one that extends great comfort and mercy and dignity and love to the victim, but at the same time, rather than you know slaying and committing a genocide against the city of Shechem, actually leads to revival in Shechem, mm. where these wicked men find eternal life in him. It's a beautiful contrast. Amen. So I'm going to jump down to verse 9, and you just see the kindness of God here. It says, After Jacob returned from Paddan Aram, God appeared to him again and blessed him. So even after all this stuff, God shows up, and his faithfulness and his blessing is still with him. And he said to him, God said to him, Your name is Jacob, but you will no longer be called Jacob. Your name is Israel, which is so good because at the conversion moment, Jacob's given a new identity, and then he goes and screws everything up. And like everyone else, you have to wonder, like, am I real? Do I really have a new identity? Look at how I just disappointed the Lord. And God comes and says, hey, I'm not taking that promise back. You're, you're not Jacob. You're Israel. You're still Israel. God said to him, and here comes the blessing. He's reaffirming it again. I am God Almighty. Be fruitful and increase in number. A nation and community of nations will come from you, and kings will come from your body. The land I gave to Abraham and Isaac, I will also give to you, and I will give this land to your descendants after you. Then God went up from him at the place where he had talked to him, and Jacob set up a stone pillar at the place where God had talked with him, and he poured out a drink offering on it, and he poured oil on it, and Jacob called the place where God had talked with him Bethel, which means the house of God. And so this is going to be like the last of the passages that that deals with Jacob in kind of an active sense. Everything from here on, it kind of shifts toward his his sons, and he's going to deal with a lot of grief. But he's a change, changed man after this. I mean, apart from the favoritism that he continues to show to Joseph, which is stupid and has a ton of mess, he becomes a changed man. And here's one of the things that I love about the story, and this is where I'm going to end, because it's such a downer story. It's encouraging to me in this way. If you look at Jacob 
and you imagine him at, at this point of his life, kind of like David, at the end of his life, he starts looking at his children and his household is a mess. And Jacob, I want you to imagine when he gets later on in his life, looking at his household, shambles. Like I've got genocidal kids. I've got a son who slept with my concubine. I got Judah who's sleeping with shrine prostitutes and doing terrible things and demanding to burn his daughter-in-law to death. Jacob's kids, they don't trust him. They despise him. You'll see that in the Joseph story where they lie to him and they're, they're, they're staging Joseph's death and lying to their dad even though he's in misery. And you just get the sense that his household is in shambles. And what I love about the story is it's not Jacob who cleans it up. Hmm. By the end of the story of Genesis, Jacob is going to be honored by all of Egypt, like missed and mourned, like he they loved him. And all of his children, which seems so irredeemable throughout all of these stories, come to the conclusion of Genesis acting nobly, willing to lay down their lives. Um, and they're, they're all redeemed through all of their mistakes and through all of the consequences of their mistakes. And God goes before them, not Jacob. Jacob has made a mess of parenthood. And yet God cleans up all their stories to where you, you find Judah, who's going to be a remarkable hero, and Levi's descendants are going to be set aside, set apart as priests, and Joseph becomes the savior of the world in some sense, saving the world from famine. Like This family that was so dysfunctional, the Lord still went ahead of Jacob in spite of all of his failures and cleaned all of them up. Mm. And now we can look at Jacob as a hero, not because of what Jacob did, but because of how God redeemed his story. And that's all of our hopes. Like, you, you know, every one of us, especially, you know, you go to, toward the midlife crisis and the end of your years and you think and you wonder what in the world, like, I, I, I wished I'd have done more. Or I wished I'd have changed this or I wish this didn't happen. And what we can't see is the way that God redeems our story like he does Jacob. You come to a chapter like this and you're like, how in the world could any of this be redeemed? And God does. You know, it's, it's like the Apostle Paul coming to the end of his life, the last letter he writes, and he feels like he's failed. Hmm. And yet he's the most influential person on the church in the history of the world apart from Jesus himself because God used his efforts in ways that Paul couldn't see and changed the world through him. God used Jacob and his story, redeemed it all, and changed the world through him. And so our hope is not in ourselves. And that if, if there's one message of Genesis, mm. it's that the patriarchs are not the heroes. They fail. Their faithfulness fails repeatedly, almost constantly, <laughs> it feels like. And yet there's this golden thread that runs through the patriarchs. It runs through all the Bible. It runs through the New Testament, through Christ. And it's this, God's faithfulness never fails even when ours does. Mm. And that's our hope. He redeems our stories. He makes beautiful things come where beautiful things seem impossible. And that's the gospel. That's why we can read the story of Dinah and go, gross. And yet at the same time, see, God still redeems these people. Yeah. And that's, that's where our hope is. We are never too far gone for the Lord. Amen. Thank you so much for joining us. Join us next week on the Out of Water podcast and have a blessed week. We hope you enjoyed your time with us and you will both subscribe to the podcast and listen regularly. 
You can find out more about Out of Water, catch up on past episodes, and access show notes at our website, riovistachurch.com slash outofwater. Thank you.